Yeah. Yeah. Finished? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you don't seem so short, Dave. Yeah, no, I'm positive. <laughs> I'm done. I'm done. I'm totally done. Oh, welcome back then to another episode of The Age of Enfrightenment. I am Nick. I'm one of your hosts. I'm here with my two co-hosts. I'm not going to make this intro too long because, Jesus, do we have a lot of stuff to talk about. So, just to hand it right over to one of the other guys, uh, Dave, say hi. Hello. No, that's enough. Stop. Stop doing that. And Theo, your turn. Say hi. Hello. <laughs> Dave took my hello. I didn't get a chance to say hello. Hi, I'm Ed. I don't. I, 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 I have hair. <laughs> well, he's not lying. I he do does. have hair. I've I seen don't it. like. I don't like the direction this is going in. <laughs> I don't, so, I don't want to be a podcaster anymore. Theo, <laughs> you're barely a podcaster now. <laughs> Theo, before you retire from podcasting, please let us know what we're talking about today. All right, so we got a really cool episode for you guys today. Uh, our topic is the most influential horror author of the 20th century and the godfather of the cosmic horror genre, Anne Rice. How- <laughs> we're yeah. back to vampires Listen, I, <laughs> all vampires all the time on age of and frightened vampires <laughs> no howard philip lovecraft better known as hp lovecraft or lil howie p as lil his howie friends p. his friends of which he had almost none <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah so we're talking about lovecraft if you if you are a regular listener to this podcast, you have heard him come up. I want to say every single time we've recorded is probably a, a I loose feel estimate. Like <laughs> even like in passing, he comes up at least once an episode. Yeah, I can uh, the the whole one of the reasons we're doing this. Uh, a listener was talking to me who is a big fan of the show, and she we was saying them. like. We, yeah, we got him. <laughs> and she was like, I love your show. I know I don't know who or what an HP Lovecraft is. <laughs> and I realized this whole time we've just been burning through this podcast, just really making a lot of assumptions about everybody else's weird Lovecraftian knowledge. Well, it yeah. turns out an HP Lovecraft is a kind of spooky boat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I, I will say that I think we have been working on that assumption. We've touched in little ways, like I know when we when we had one of our three-parters and I talked about uh, demon or monster mothers, we talked about uh, Shugnigaroth, and we talked a little bit about Lovecraft there. I feel like we, in, we've given pieces of his psyche and the kind of stuff that he's written, but more than... A lot of other writers, I think there's a mystique about him as a person, even though he was to the naked eye, a very boring looking uh, New Englander. He's a pretty fascinating guy. So for kind of our first profile ever of a person, it seems very fitting that it's him, because while we've touched on a lot of broad subjects, the mythos that he created feels like a broad subject, but it really all stems from this one guy, which is impressive and fascinating in a lot of ways. And it's definitely worth bringing him up on our show because, one, he is, even if you don't know the name and any of his specific works, uh, if you're a fan of contemporary fiction, not even like horror, but, you know, sci-fi or strange fiction, or have seen any sort of science fiction movie in the past, you know, three decades, you've seen echoes of his work. Um, You know, some of the people that he's influenced over the years, uh, Stephen King, John Carpenter, uh, Guillermo del Toro. Yeah. Uh, we'll get into all of that a little bit later. But the 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 man himself was a really fascinating figure and really has uh, had this strange life where just, you know, he was surrounded in mystery. So he almost could have been a character in one of his own stories. Yeah, de- he definitely has a, f- a feeling akin to Poe because I, I think people love to mystify the life of, of Edgar Allan Poe. And in a lot of ways, it's worth it. He had a very kind of melancholy life. And Lovecraft fits into that same category where he <laughs> he was living in the horror that he was kind of painting for the world. Not yeah. in as literal of a way, but certainly within his own brain, 
what all of the things we're going to talk about didn't come from nowhere basically yeah nothing in hp lovecraft's life was good (laughs) right like from the time he was born until the time he died he was one of those unfortunate cases that got really 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 famous after he died yeah but just died in like abject poverty yeah like like walk like sitting in a bread line and just and this is a guy who came from a a more well-off family in in new england at least at first and a lot of tragedy (laughs) befell the family Mm. as well but they do feel like to me his family almost feels more like a poe story because they're a little more grounded on earth but are plagued by what feels like a curse that just seems to be like hanging over them at all times and it's just it's kind of no wonder that he wrote the kind of work that he did so just to start off with some of the facts and then we'll all kind of chime in with different things we know about his life he was born uh august 20th 1890 so you got to figure this is very like industrial revolution america lots of uh you know cities are kind of becoming choked by by pollution from factories and things just to kind of set like the visual scene of this and he everybody's mother died in a in a shirt fire <laughs> right right a, sh- a shirt fire like their shirts caught fire no like a shirt like a factory, shirt factory father. fire and, okay. well, everyone's mother because they're in a shirt factory fire. their clothes were so complicated that like if your shirt did catch on fire it would take like a half hour <laughs> to get it off so i mean it would be equally as deadly <laughs> anyway what? you cut it shirt fires are fucking terrible Especially if it's like your favorite shirt, because then there's a sense of betrayal attached to it, which just adds a layer of darkness. But yeah, I think uh, he he grew up in 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 New England, uh, like I said, in, in Providence, Rhode Island. So one thing, and we'll get into why this matters a, a little bit from now, maybe not right away. You cannot picture a waspier place than this part of New England at the time, and waspy meaning white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant. And it colors a lot of the way that he sees the world, not just when it comes to other people, but there's sort of um, there's like a pretension of academics meets meets repression that comes from that sort of upbringing. So imagine someone who is constantly reading books, learning about the world, but is also kind of plagued by the feeling that they shouldn't know that much because it's like immoral. So that was the kind of world that he lived in. And in a lot of ways fell in step with, but in a lot of other ways in his writing went way outside of by exploring the dark corners of of fiction and of psychology. So he was like kind of in this very tumultuous place in his own mind where he was like struggling with this idea of the other, everything outside of this community, and then also having sort of pride in the upbringing that he had. So very kind of conflicted guy from the from the beginning. The, the fact that a lot of H.P. Lovecraft characters are academics, a huge theme in his work is always Promethean knowledge. It's knowledge that is not supposed to be known or gained by anyone, and the pursuit of which has usually devastating effect. You can absolutely see from his upbringing where he grew up, how that tied into his work. Yeah, so this is, I mean, he's, he's an educated guy, um, sort of a repressed guy, not... Did not have a great family life uh, before both of his parents ended up dying in the same uh, insane asylum. His father, when he was only three years old and his mother much later on in life, Um, they weren't great to him. I mean, if you think about your stereotype of sort of like cold, distant parents in that like region of the U.S., they fit it. (laughs) His dad was a traveling salesman. Yeah. And so his dad was just never around. So he had like, you know, the... Extreme, an extremely strange relationship with his father, and his father wound up in the asylum. And it was when he died; he died of syphilis, and you know that just rots your brain out. Yeah, and it was one of those things too, where that was a time where people were dying of a lot of diseases like that, but it wasn't fully understood yet. Mm-hmm. So there was—I've even read reports saying that, like, well, we think it was syphilis. It, there was no signs of Lovecraft or his mother having it, but. You know, it even begs the question of like what ailments might he himself have been suffering from either hereditary or because of the the nature of like the country at the time that we don't necessarily know. I mean, there, there have been conjecture about those kinds of things, but nothing really substantiated. What we do know 
is that he did die at a very young age of intestinal cancer. So pretty brutal way to go um, at, yeah. at any time, but especially then when treatment is mostly just like, I don't know, here's a bunch of morphine or like laudanum and like, you'll be fine. It's here's like, a it's... bucket of leeches and morphine. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so he died and, and sort of like Dave said, he died with nothing. I mean, throughout his entire career, he was very prolific but didn't make a lot of money because he wasn't publishing books. He was selling his stories to magazines like weird tales and astounding stories. And they paid garbage like the, the The appetite for the kinds of stories that he told just wasn't a mainstream thing until decades later. So even though he was praised by his peers and the few friends that he had as being like a genius, in general, the public was like, I don't want to read this weird ass shit. And critics actually didn't really like him either. They thought his prose was a little too lofty. And like, it, you know, it was a time where people were much more like be upfront and be rooted in reality. And he had these sort of lofty ideas of language and how to describe cosmic things that just didn't jive with people. So he didn't he didn't make any money. <laughs> he didn't he didn't see success in, in his time. And he died with a very with like not a pauper's grave because he's in a family plot, the Phillips plot, but compared to the massive uh, headstone of the Phillips plot, he had like nothing. And it wasn't until 77 that like fans paid to get him an actual headstone. And it says, I am Providence on it. Cause that was one, a quote from him when talking about the place that he grew up. Yeah. So besides um, his parents who were just shitty, um, well, it, it should be said his mom was, unintentionally shitty because she was just devoted to him to the point of obsession like she wouldn't let him out of her sight uh she he he was sickly you know in the sense that like he was thin and kind of like a wiener but like in the vague you know sort of like kid from the secret garden oh he's sick well right. sick with fucking what he's sick with <laughs> nothing really he just has sick, weird parents sick like the girl in in a sixth sense who's just like oh mm. i can't leave the house well <laughs> i don't i don't think that his mother had munchausen syndrome by proxy but he was just like she really doted on him to the point where she was overbearing exactly uh, she, like she, he, he really wasn't allowed to have a normal childhood because she a, a good a good uh, crossover of that is, is he's he was he grew up a lot like Eddie from it with like this overbearing yeah. mother that constantly thought he was sick and constantly took care of him and it turned him into kind of a socially strange individual right. individual and she was and she was doting and overbearing in in a cruel way because she was also reported as having called him grotesque like to his face like part of her was saying like no you're sickly and horrid to see like you're pallid because you never see the sunlight and you shouldn't leave. Like other people won't understand you like I do because you're kind of a and monster. And she wasn't wrong. He looked he looked like a pile of garlic. <laughs> he, was well, pretty pretty awful. <laughs> he looks like he was carved out of an onion. Right. But because of that, early on, he really grew this pattern of only really going out at night, which has sort of like a has this like Jekyll and Hyde feel where like he knows he's a human being, but he feels like he needs to like sneak out in the middle of the night. He would sleep really long during the day because this like exposure to the elements he either thought or his mom told him would be like very bad for him. So he'd like sleep all day and then all night he would he would study like physics and astronomy and mythology and all of the stuff that he eventually wrapped into his work. Yeah, because he. All right, just to give you an idea of how this kid was, he had to leave school because he had a nervous breakdown. All right. And I think that was at a very young age. Wasn't that like around 15? Yeah, yeah he, he was, was in high school. In high school yeah. Most of us don't have our first nervous breakdown until we're about 27. Right. And then, <laughs> so. it's, just, then it's just like routine. <laughs> yeah. Like he had to leave school because of this, but he was still fascinated by astrology uh, or I should say astronomy um physics everything so he would just uh, i hate saying this this nerd would just stay up all night not in school but just studying constantly like he was so fascinated by the stars and what was beyond them 
And that comes out in his writing later in a really, really big way. Yeah. And one of the reasons for that is because the only family member he had who wasn't like a total piece of shit was his grandfather, his his mother's father. And he was actually the one who like would encourage him to, you know, like pursue these like academic studies and everything and um, actually like encouraged him to kind of branch out a bit. Like I remember reading one story where he talked in like a letter to one of his friends. He talked about how his grandfather, when he was very young, he was terrified of the dark and his grandfather would make him walk through these dark rooms in the house (laughs) to like face his fear and how he actually like it made him feel like better and more like, you know, at home in the dark. And, like, his grandfather's idea was, like, you got to get over this shit. But his grandfather, besides being just, like, a really smart dude, was really into occult stuff. So he grew up in this big gothic, you know, estate. And his grandfather had a library of, you know, and not just, like, scary stories, but, like, actual occult texts, you know, and, like, grimoires and things like that. And that had, like, a huge influence on him. And that that shows through in his work so much because of how it's kind of like a a tying together thread. But we'll talk a little bit about the Necronomicon and what that book is in his larger mythos. But all of his stories have characters that are constantly, even if it's just in passing, being like, oh, this reminds me of something I read in the the Necronomicon, which is uh, the Book of the Dead um, and was written by the Mad Arab, which is something we can also get into. But it's basically this grimoire of like knowledge that we shouldn't have. And it's always something that's like stumbled upon, but it's, it's a book that people in polite society have read. Like all of these academics and scientists in his stories will be like, Oh yes. When I was a younger man reading the Necronomicon, it's all, it's all kind of done in the way that you explained his grandfather having done it is like, Oh, I want to know more stuff. So I have to read Yeah. It's kind of like everybody, who looked at the naked pictures of Jennifer Lawrence online. Like, we all saw them and kind of mentioned them, but we're not proud of the fact that we did it, you know? You know, honestly, that's know actually a pretty, a pretty decent description of it. <laughs> I mean, that, that shit, that makes sense to me. It really is like <laughs> not that, Not that I too. saw those pictures, though. I didn't look at them. It really is like that, too, because it is one of those things that in polite society, it was pretty popular with, like, wealthy people to be into occult stuff, but you weren't it was taboo to talk about it. So it, it would always kind of come back to be like, well, you know, for like academic research, like the ne- Necronomicon, a copy of it is in the library at Miskatonic University, which is uh, the school that features in a lot of the stories and also at Brown, which is a real Ivy League school. So it is one of those things like, well, if you're a wealthy white person, you can be into this stuff, but you have to like taper it with like, oh, for academic reasons, I was I was looking into this like. I wasn't yeah, play I wasn't pool. furiously masturbating. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure that Jennifer Lawrence was okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I didn't look at the exactly. Aubrey Plaza ones either, you know. I didn't know that doesn't even exist. I think you just want us to google that right now. No, it does it does exist. I so heard, I, so I read I, an I, article I, that it exists. I, oh, I, yeah. You read I, an article. I read an article. I, I got to go. I got to go. It's turning into a very different podcast. Fair. Let's all just let let's just let that fucking silence roll out. <laughs> that chick from the Green Arrow show, I didn't see her either. Okay, okay, we gotta we can all name celebrities that we've seen naked now. <laughs> so I think we need to to bring this back to, to Lil Howie P a little bit. So just to kind of round out his characteristics, I think we've set the scene for like what kind of person he was. Um, but when combined with his studies, his sort of paranoia made him kind of an interesting guy when it comes to his belief system because he was like a strict rationalist. Like he wanted to only believe in things that made scientific sense and he didn't really believe in a deity that was that was moving things. Like he believed in like a machine work basically of the universe, but it was an unthinking machine, which is terrifying in its own mind, I guess, that that things are at play, but no one has control over it. But the interesting like photo negative of that is his fascination with the occult and science fiction and things that aren't really there and a lot of that was based on his dreams so he would have these very vivid dreams and nightmares of things that show up in his stories and he took them very seriously not necessarily as like this must be real somewhere but it feels real and therefore it needs to be looked into and categorized and studied 
Um, so he had a very like scientific way of looking at his own paranoia and fear uh, that really that really worked into his his stories. I know specifically when he was a kid, he had dreams about the night gaunts, yes. which were yeah monsters yeah. that were in his story. These like tall black faceless beasts with like wings and that he he would have dreams of them and eventually just started writing about them so fun fact uh about how lovecraft weans his way into this podcast in a million different ways the and you guys don't even know this the intro music uh for this podcast is from a song that i wrote like eight years ago and it was originally inspired by the poem, The Night Gaunts, that he wrote. Oh, is that why it's oh. called Hunger Birds? So, yeah, so, and then getting even more Lovecrafty. And so over time, the, the, the creatures that I wrote about were a little different. And so I, I, it was inspired by, but they were, they had actual mouths and they had like, uh, like talons with, uh, like metal talons. And they were sort of based on it. And then years later, I changed the title to Hunger Birds based on the story by Neil Gaiman, Ocean at the End of the Lane, which is also greatly inspired by Lovecraft, where similar winged creatures uh, that prey on people's like anxiety and fear kind of descend upon the protagonist. So it's sort of inspired by both stories. Yeah, no, as oh, no neat. surprise, H.P. Lovecraft had terrible night terrors, specifically sleep paralysis, in the stories about the night gaunts, yeah, you know, because it depends which story they were in, but they were often the bad guy. And what they would do is grab children while they were sleeping and just kind of toy with them. And if at any point they dropped them, they would basically be lost in the dream realm. Now, if anyone has ever experienced night paralysis, it's very similar to this in that your unconscious mind is going, but your conscious mind is active at the same time. So you get these crazy hallucinations. They used to be called devil dreams because it would feel like the devil was sitting on your chest. Mm -hmm. And it's not a far stretch at all to see how his night terrors and his sleep paralysis uh, very much influence the idea of night gaunts and mm -hmm. that the idea the even more terrifying idea that it was this struggle that was happening where you maybe would not wake up from that. Like you would be lost in that terrifying reality of being completely paralyzed right. and hallucinating. And even that construct of the night gaunts, I mean, we get the word nightmare from an idea of like a horse that enters your room. Like that's the mare part. But the other version of that from like the romantic period was the, the incubus that would sit on your chest and weigh you down. And that's something that he would have known Amongst about. other things. <laughs> <laughs> he would play the tickle game with you. And, uh, oh, but he would have known saucy about that. fellow. He would have seen paintings and would have read in his, like, sort of uh, the society that he grew up in about that stuff. And then it would have affected his dreams. So he was very plugged into the way that people psychologically thought about what dreams meant and how they can torment you and, and reflect that and then had his own version of it. Because at the end of the day, no matter how much he was influenced by other stuff, he had a very vivid imagination and was able to turn it into something completely new, like the night gaunts that have kind of persisted as a, as a main part of his, his entire uh, bestiary of, of monsters. All right. So speaking of, all of his monsters. Let's get into that. Oh, yeah. So when a lot of people talk about Lovecraft, they talk about the Cthulhu mythos, which, um, yeah, you know what, Nick, real briefly, because we will absolutely circle back around to him, just uh, Nick or Ed, g g give like a description of Cthulhu and what he is. Okay, I'll do it. <laughs> so... Particularly in the past, like, decade, uh, the, the one character that's really stood out from Lovecraft's work and really is, like, totemic of his his whole body work is the big guy, Cthulhu. So even if you don't know the word, I'm sure you've seen him on the internet somewhere. So he is, and you, you gotta give it to Lovecraft, he has created some incredibly original monsters not just like werewolves and vampires and shit but like real real like one-of-a-kind things so cthulhu is described in the text as being a cross between a man a dragon and an octopus and he exists as this 
just hundreds of meters tall beast with the body of a man and his face. He has eyes. Most depiction of him has eyes, but instead of a mouth, it's just a mass of tentacles. And right, these and they're gigantic... always wriggling, and they're they're kind of like gelatinous and gross. Yeah, yeah. And the, these gigantic wings on his back, and the the story of Cthulhu is he's uh, a, a a god. He's a god, and he's not dead, but he's asleep. I mean, he well, he is dead, but <laughs> because he's this god, one of the great old ones, death doesn't work for them the same way it would work for us. So he's going to come back, and he's in this city um relier that is at the bottom of the ocean and he's just dreaming and it's an inevitable ne- inevitable inevitability it's, an <laughs> it's gonna fucking happen that he's going to come back one day right and that's sort of the crux of the his part in it but yeah the, so it, there was basically there was a great war and love and uh, Cthulhu was trapped underneath the waves, which is exactly where he does not want to be on our planet. And he's asleep. He's in he's somewhere between dead and asleep. And but he has dreams, and occasionally like one eye will open or something like that. And he is so powerful that just from him stirring in his sleep, he basically communicates with people who are us, like people, people that worship him and follow him. And I think it's interesting to note, too, something that becomes a big theme is sort of sensitivity to this otherworldly stuff, and it shows up a lot with creative people. So something that Lovecraft probably pulled from himself being a writer. So in The Call of Cthulhu, there are two different sculptures of him, and we find out about a particular sculptor who was working on... Uh, he was a RISD student, and so in Rhode Island, right in Lovecraft's uh, sort of hometown of Providence, and was working on a little, like, jade or a little, like, emerald statue that depicted... And that's the first kind of full depiction that we get is of this statue as opposed to him himself. And it always... All of these stories, like Music of Eric's on, like people who are creative and tapped into something that goes beyond rational thought are the ones that will pick up on these vibrations, basically, from Cthulhu and and other Elder Gods as well. Um, And it's just an interesting way to look at creativity, because I think his whole thought is, is that these things aren't coming from nothing. So if they are coming from a specific place, it, it would have to be very powerful. So... If you have dreams about something as opposed to just being like, well, it's nothing, it's a dream. In Lovecraft's world, it's deeper knowledge. It's some kind of cosmic truth that if you yeah. if you saw the whole, it would drive you insane. But having yeah. just a piece of it, you can still kind of function as a human being. That's the big thing, though, going back to that Promethean knowledge. He has followers and he has people that are more sensitive to him. But he is so alien that... And he's so powerful that him, you being more sensitive to him is not a good thing. It is not like a God (laughs) speaking to you. You go insane. Right. Like you completely lose your mind. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like being infected with a parasite. Like he's, he's so alien that his presence at all inside your head is very bad. Um, So it's interesting, uh, Theo, when you were describing Cthulhu and referring to him as the big guy. So... He's not technically the big guy as far as like the biggest and scariest, but I think what's interesting is I, and I just thought of this now, he reminds me of the way that the T-Rex is in the Jurassic Park series where he's not like the biggest or most powerful monster, but he's definitely your favorite. Like he's the fan favorite. He's the one that is like, oh, finally Cthulhu showed up. And that just sort of built over time. But there are sort of older beings and things like that. So I think, Dave, I know you wanted to talk about oh, Azathoth yeah. as sort of like yeah. the great granddaddy. So Cthulhu, <laughs> yeah, so Cthulhu is basically the second to last generation. There is, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six generations, eight technically, but really six, of monsters that all stem from Azathoth, which is, Azathoth is, is basically... Lovecraft's answer to God. Mm. It is way out, 
pretty much in the center of the universe, and it is this big gelatinous blob with multiple arms. And another name for Azazoth is the blind idiot god because he is blind, he doesn't really have a plan, but he has a flute that he plays that basically causes all of existence. However, the problem is that that flute is cracked, so the music is imperfect. So what happens is some sometimes it turns out fine, depending on what note he hits, or because of that little warble in his flute, everything gets fucked up. And it was through this, because he's the only one that doesn't have a mate that he basically fucks and makes other monsters. He makes everything through this flute more or less he he was the first he came out of nowhere and as vast as the universe is he can basically reach across it like it's nothing and he's really he's neither evil nor bad Mm. he he's just this being in the center of the universe that's doing things just for the sake of doing them he's been around so long that he has no real sense of good and evil uh, what's normal, what's abnormal. He's just constantly creating. Now, he, although he's like that, he has a son who is named Narlahotep, who is quite the opposite of Azazoth. Narlahotep is evil. Like, he's he's pretty fucking bad. And he hates his father. He thinks that he has too much power. <laughs> I hate you, Dad. Well, more or less, he he's he hates how powerful his father is, and he's much more guided towards destruction. Mm-hmm. He's often portrayed as almost like a pharaoh, but much, much taller. He's superhuman. He lives underneath the earth, and he'll actually walk the earth and other planets just looking for victims. And he's constantly... He is constantly trying to rise up against his father and take over and conquer worlds. Right. He's much more of like in like the Marvel Cinematic Universe. He's much more of like a Loki, right? And then oh yeah, yeah. And I was gonna say if we if we needed to, not that there's a direct uh, draw, but remember that this is written by a guy who was raised as like a Protestant. So if you needed to draw a biblical reference, I mean, he's the Lucifer to Azathoth's God. The difference being that Azathoth is not um, omniscient because he's kind of dumb. He's sort of chaos. But yeah, but that's sort of what Narlahotep is, is like he's the deceiver. And in I think in the Haunter in the Dark, he kind of gives this cult uh in egypt the I think it's in Egypt. Yeah, the shining. Yeah, it's Egypt. Yeah, the shining trapezohedron which is like just another one of those Lovecraftian words that is impossible to say. Um, But it's basically like a source of great knowledge, but it's very similar to the Adam and Eve thing where it's like, I'm going to give this to you, but you have to make a sacrifice to me. And it's not really a gift. It's a curse. It's like, you're going to get cosmic knowledge, but it is not any, it's not going to help you. It's going to be the worst thing that ever happened to you. And he sort of just revels in, in toying with lesser beings in that way. Dave, something you hit on that really, I think, hits the core of what Lovecraft is about, uh, Azathoth not really being evil. And, like, what the the style that Lovecraft pretty much invented, or if not invented, then um, perfected, was cosmic horror. This idea that real terror comes from the fact, the, the, the idea of a person truly understanding their place in the universe and how insignificant we really are. Right. Like even, even Cthulhu, um, like later authors who took up Lovecraft's work, because that's what happened eventually is that like other authors kind of like expanded upon his mythos. Um, but Lovecraft didn't really write Cthulhu as like evil. He was just, he was more like a hurricane or a tsunami. He was a force of nature. Uh, because good and evil are concepts that humanity has invented, but to these these creatures, you know, Azathoth and Cthulhu and all the other ones, they, that doesn't matter. Nothing we've done or we created matters because these things exist, and you know, they're they're to us like we are to ants. And you're right, Neralt Hotep is the only one who's really ever 
specifically described as a, a, a real bad guy who, who has yeah. real like true malice in his heart. And um, yeah, you're right. He's very much like Loki and like the Thor movies. Uh, the the song Red Right Hands by Nick Cave. I don't know if it's about Neral Hotep, but it describes him. Mm. Yeah. And yeah, his his you're right. His whole thing is like he's trying to he's he's the herald of the the old ones, and he's oh, trying yeah. to he knows that when these things come back into the universe or awake from their slumber, they're going to destroy everything uh, through no fault of their own. But that's what he wants to happen. Yeah. Oh yeah. Exactly. He's very much like the Walking Man, Randall Flag in uh in this stand. Yeah. Like he's he's the one putting the pieces together to bring about the end of all things. So from Azathos, you have two races. We're going to try to get to Cthulhu. We're going to go down the left-hand path. Okay. So he's got, besides Narlahotep, he's got three things that he created. The Other Gods, the Darkness, and the Nameless Mist. From the Darkness... I saw them in Philly, like, a month ago. (laughs) They're really good. You think they only have the one song, but they have, like, a lot of other ones. And funny enough, they were opened up by the Nameless Mist, so it's like... uh... (laughs) (laughs) That must have been awesome. That was a great show. Getting the whole band back together. But the Darkness spawned a character that we've... that Nick actually covered to some extent on this podcast, which is Shub Nikaroth, which is basically the mother of monsters. Um, all she does is give birth to these horrible <laughs> world-ending things without yeah. really meaning to. But you have to understand, all of these gods are so powerful that it's a lot of them. They they look very alien and terrifying to us, and they are alien and terrifying because they're immortal, because they've been alive for so long. That they just look at things differently. Right. Like our life is nothing right. to them. Like they're too, you know, we think about how we get older and older and we become wise because of that. They're so old that they've moved beyond ego and beyond morality. Right, and beyond morality and even agency to a degree. Like they're just pure uh creation and activity. So Shogunagaroth is just constantly like spurting monsters out of various orifices in her giant gelatinous body that is just like it's just it's a sense of purpose that goes beyond anything we can comprehend which is i think one of the harder things about lovecraft to wrap your head around is that the whole point is that we don't get it so you're never gonna get like a a psychological profile of these characters where you're like oh i see what their motivation is there like the whole point is that there is none motivation is is a human construct in the way that we see it. And whatever they see it as is impossible for us to comprehend, try as, as we might. Which I think is yeah. probably why it's still kind of a niche, even though it's become much more popular, it's still kind of a niche genre of horror because it's not as clean as simple as like, oh, this guy... There's a ghost. Yeah, or there's a ghost <laughs> or like Scream yeah. where it's like, oh, these two kids that are all fucked up and decided to kill their friends because they wanted to be famous and whatever. Like... There's no there's no purpose that we can wrap our head around because we've never experienced what it's like to be Azathoth or or some of these things. Yeah. Now, just to give you an idea of how far Cthulhu is down the line, Shub Nikaroth gave birth to Yeb and Nug, and they gave birth to Cthulhu. So Cthulhu, yeah, get them Nugs. <laughs> Cthulhu is like almost a lesser god. Yeah. And yeah. now he's heralded on Earth, which is where he's supposed to be, as like the destructor. Right. Like, so you could see, like, as this moves down the line, he had a few kids of his own that like basically are terrifying to us, but are not as destructive as Cthulhu. Right. It would, as you move up the line, these guys just get more and more powerful and terrifying. Right. It would be like if you lived in a small town where like Hitler's great grandson was the mayor. You might be like, oh, well, like what an intense guy. But it's like, oh, no, no, you don't even understand. Like you have no you have no concept of how big this gets. Yeah. Yeah. And he keeps saying he's not doing anything to like Hitlery, but he keeps saying ominous things like I have the final solution for the pothole problem. (laughs) (laughs) That's Cthulhu. (laughs) Right. Cthulhu is is like, oh yeah, he's like, he's problematic, but I, you know, we don't have to be that worried about him. 
Yeah, as long as it doesn't wake up, we're okay. One thing that's interesting as we go through these monsters that's really important to talk about is as menacing and and physically imposing as they all are, it's not really like Cthulhu has claws and he has all these things that make him terrifying, but the fear of Cthulhu isn't like he's going to tear me to pieces or eat me. Most of the victims, the characters throughout all these stories, they lose their minds just at the, yeah. the the sight of or even the notion that this exists like in certain like in Dagon there's a uh, that's another creature that is sort of from the Rallier realm and just like experiencing seeing what it is for a moment is so horrifying that it makes people snap and it like ruins their lives so that kind of goes back to this idea of Aliens. So one of the things that you'll see throughout all of his creatures is this uh, non-Euclidean geometry. So nothing is in like a circle or a square or things that that make like real sense to us, but they're incomprehensible shapes. And just seeing something so other will completely ruin a person's life and drive them insane, which is interesting that you have this big monster and you think like, oh, it's like a T-Rex. It's just going to eat everything in its path. It's like, no, it's just going to make you... It's going to render you like a vegetable for the rest of your life. Oh, yeah. And that's just while it's sleeping. Right. If right. it wakes up, <laughs> it's like the Cloverfield monster in that it will just kind of accidentally destroy everything. Right. It's not even trying um, to. It's just so big and like and imposing. And yeah. Yeah. And it just it's 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 nature to gather followers and kill people. Right. Um, You know, it doesn't necessarily make it evil, but that's what it is. <laughs> So unless either of you boys have another one of the, like the monsters or characters you specifically want to talk about, I think we should probably bring up one of the bigger parts about Lovecraft's whole deal that Nick touched on is the fear of the other mm. and how that sort of defined him. So I think that's a perfect segue because as far as creatures go, there was one kind that I want to talk about just because they're so prevalent in, in his stories and that's the deep ones. So the deep ones are sort of like humanoid fish people. Like they're amphibious. They're described in many stories as having like bulging eyes. And they pe- they're, they're, they feature real prominent in um, Shadow Over Innsmouth. Right. Which is like one of his like more big deal stories. Right. So yeah. kind of going over the, the brief synopsis of that, the, the idea with Innsmouth is it's a, it's a port town where the humans who live there made a deal with these creatures, these deep ones, that that would basically keep them having abundance of fish to eat like throughout the time. So it's kind of a deal with the devil that they made, but with this entire race of beings that kind of come from below the sea. And the deal involves the deep ones interbreeding with the humans. And it's like a very specific kind. It's like just the males of the humans and the females of the deep ones can create like a hybrid. And over time, that hybrid goes from looking very human to very much like the deep ones. And there's a really deep-seated meaning behind all that that kind of cuts into into who Lovecraft was, which is his unbelievable xenophobia. So this is a guy, I'm not sure what we're looking at right now. (laughs) D- you didn't get just see uh, Dave's text? No. Let's see. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so if you've ever seen the meme, Kachow, what's poppin', fellow weirdos? It's your boy HP back at it again with the fish people. <laughs> Those are the deep ones. <laughs> so the, the core thinking behind this is kind of wrapped around a very popular at the time idea of eugenics, which we talked a little bit about, I'm sure, at some point. Um this idea of of creating a more perfect race or on the inverse the dumbing down of a bloodline it's a super racist thing that the nazis picked up on but something that was kind of core to lovecraft's belief too again he was a white anglo-saxon protestant who believed very strongly in the purity of bloodline so the whole horror of Innsmouth as he created it is the idea of creating monsters by inner species breeding and that's how he would have seen uh, mixed race marriages or even just cre- you know like mulatto as they called them children at the time oh yeah and what you this actually turned into a real theme across all of his works because aside from Promethean knowledge the other really big theme is guilt by blood yeah so basically the sins of your elders 
like to these gods, to these beings, they'll take it out on you, even if it's a hundred years removed. And in Shadow Over Innsmouth, that's the case with this. Like this guy's, I think, great grandparents yeah. were involved uh, with these fish people, but it doesn't take that far of a walk to get to his opinions on race mixing yeah yeah because that's the thing is that like he came he was the product of a very racist time in this country you know he was born in 1890 it wasn't that long after the civil war so it's understandable that he would have these you know views that we definitely would not agree with today but he also took it to the fucking extreme because remember he had a he had a rough childhood so um you know, it's it wasn't just that, you know, well, black people aren't OK. It was, you know, the Jews aren't OK and the Irish aren't OK. And people from too far east in Europe, but still in Europe, they're not OK. Right. And like he didn't like Germans because he thought they were too ethnic. Like he was racist oh, to the point wow. where it was just silly. Yeah. So this is it kind of comes into what I would call like true xenophobia as in actual fear of the other. Whereas your grandpa might have some uh, some non-choice words for, I, I don't know, like the Indians who live on his street and he might try to be cute about it. Um, and use name name three more people that your grandfather is racist about. <laughs> but the, but but it's not that kind of like oh he's a product of his time because I I do know that in talks about Lovecraft people have been like well wasn't everybody racist back then it's like yeah but this is true fear and there's I mean this is a guy and I won't even read some of the things that he said about black people in his letters because I don't even want to say them out loud they're that bad but uh, I will say something about Jews. <laughs> So one thing that he wrote in one of his letters uh, was he referred to Jews as hook-nosed, swarthy, guttural-voiced aliens. And that was very clear. Like, he talked about undesirable Latins. And even he called uh, the French Canadians in Canada a plague. Like, this is a guy who used terms that weren't just like, oh, I don't like those people, but they are a threat to the existence of the white race. I mean, it's like true Aryanism in its in its greatest form, but but very plugged into fear. What I think is interesting about him, though, is and I don't know how much people have looked into this because I couldn't find a lot. I think there's a degree of like internal worry about this, because one thing that I did read was he was very concerned about his own bloodline because his parents both went insane and died in a mental institution. And he was worried that that was like a eugenic sort of trait that he would pick up on and would ultimately kill him. So I think he had this inner feeling of like, well, what if, what if I'm a monster? What if I'm one of the deep ones and I don't even realize it? So kind of like you said, Dave, that idea of like the sins of the ancestors, like in his own mind, was there this fear that he's gonna, that he's gonna have some great downfall because his own bloodline has been tainted by like the sins of others. Yeah, that's the that that's really kind of like the the moral dilemma of being a big fan of H.P. Lovecraft is that like, you know, he had these reprehensible views, but created some of the best fiction that's ever been created. And I, I think for him, with a lot of even like modern contemporary racists, it's like the the hatred that he feels is a very conceptual thing. Like he lived in Providence, Rhode Island in you know 1915 there weren't any black people there you know he he hated the idea of these other races he when he got married in his 30s he married a jewish woman yeah but like yeah and like he, when he lived in new york um like at first they lived in this like really like nice affluent area and he loved it and then you know they started running out of money and he had to live in flatbush and was exposed yeah to you know people from like you know different races and everything and that's when you know his his later stuff really like he because he wrote like the um, what is it the um the horror of red hook which is very racist um but like once he and that was like immediately when they moved to brooklyn but it uh, people have also argued that like that was sort of like a knee-jerk reaction and as he actually like met and interact with his people kind of started shifting his views like there's people like one of the last stories that he wrote but is also probably the most influential is at the mountains of madness and people 
like scholars look at that and say like this is they can see like the cracks forming in his super racist beliefs because it's about like this ancient race and how they and had this um the, this ancient race called the um the elder things and they had this 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 um cast of slaves called the shugoths and the shugoths rose up against them and people argue that like this is like his like way of like sort of like apologizing you know this is like him saying this is what happens when you subjugate other people is that they rise up and like rightfully so and another one um that i love called rats in the walls is about this like rich um man from like european ancestry who finds out um that his ancestors were these like horrible cannibals and yeah. it drives him mad the knowledge so like all, all of these like terrible things that he he felt like i really think it was because he was so isolated you know it was it, it was this vicious cycle of like he he lived in a very isolated situation, but had like was so terrified of things outside of it, so he stayed more isolated because of it. Yeah, and yeah, no, you definitely see the cracks forming and the rats in the walls. Another one where you you really feel that like the just like in um at the mountains of madness uh, or the rats in the walls where you see some form of injustice going on is the mound. Where, you know, this is why I love Lovecraft so much. He was given a job to ghostwrite for somebody. And the only outline he was given is there is a haunted mound in the middle of the country uh, with a headless female ghost. That was all the direction he was given. He wrote a 26,000 word story that basically the mound is the entrance point to an underground realm, which is, you know, beckons back to the Hollow Earth episode we talked about, that has a master race below it that has been living there for millennia, like a long, 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 long time. And part of the problem is they've been down there for so long and they're so smart and they're so technically advanced, uh, technologically advanced that they've begun as entertainment uh, basically raising human cattle. Like, so they ride them as horses and there's all different types of human cattle, but they're described as being almost human, having human faces and expressions and thoughts, but like some of them have four legs so that they can be ridden. They're made for very specific jobs. And these elder ones have been down there for so long that their only real entertainment is horribly torturing and mutilating these things uh, in basically like amphitheaters. Uh, like that is what they do for fun just because they're so dulled by the passage of time. So in this story, this guy, the, this, uh, I believe he's an archeologist actually ventures into the mound and, uncovers a story where one of the travelers that went down there, like a person who was trying to explore this underground land is captured and through, through the charity of one of the slaves uh, tries to escape back to the surface world. He's basically, he's, they want him to stay down there because he has all the knowledge of the surface world and he wants to leave because, you know, these people are fucking crazy. And this slave, more or less, helps him escape, but is caught in the process and is basically tortured horribly for years and years and years. And they eventually cut her head off, turn her into a zombie, and she's forced to guard the entrance to the mound. So that was the headless female that, like, in the outline he was given... So, you know, you start to see him make more of a shift towards like, yeah, they're different than us, like, and we use them for X, Y, and Z, but like they have, in this case, more of a conscience than the great technically advanced white elder race. So you definitely start to see the cracks form. Man, he definitely, he took a long walk to get there from Headless Ghost in the Mounds. Oh, yeah. Damn. Yeah. Um. 
when we on the we're we're planning to do another episode on this, but um, and we're going to talk a little bit more about specific stories. But Rats in the Walls, my favorite, gets into like the idea of human cattle again. Uh, so that'll be cool. But yeah, yeah. it's like it's it, it's strange because you know uh, again, I never thought I'd be saying the sentence, but since Nazis have been making such a big resurgence. They have actually like he's Lovecraft has like had a big resurgence among white supremacists because they're all really focusing in on all the worst aspects of his writing and like this like well yeah see he got it you know we should be separate from the the blacks and the Jews um, and it's just it's so ironic to me because like he wasn't he wasn't a well man you know yeah and like he ended up dying very young of um you know, like bowel cancer or something like that. But what tickles me is that, you know, years before he died, he he lived like a child because like he had a wife. They were married for two years. They had no money. So she, they were both traveling constantly to like, you know, for for work to make ends meet. And then they divorced amicably after two years. Oh, well. uh, but I mean, the fact that they the fact that they even divorced in you know what in the the 30s that's that was unheard of uh but like he after that like he subsisted on a diet of candy and booze like that was what he ate so like of course he fucking died of you know stomach problems but like he didn't he that wasn't that wasn't strange to him that wasn't you know it wasn't like he's like well i know i should be eating vegetables and stuff but i want my candy and booze he, that's what he that made sense to him because he was such a fucked up individual. But because he was such a fucked up individual, he made some of the most profound horror that will ever exist on this planet. You know, I really think of him as like the Van Gogh of horror. You know, yeah, his yeah, uh, unappreciated in his time, uh, led an extremely tortured life, got no fucking recognition for it. But years later, like you know, his name is synonymous with with his craft. Oh yeah, we'll get, Lovecraft. Ah, if you will. We'll get into all of this in the next episode, but without him and what he did, I can't even tell you what fiction would look like now. It would be quite different. Like he he has a hand in pretty much all your favorite authors and movie and uh directors and you know, he just he did a lot. And it sucks that the Nazis are using him right now, but you kind of have to look past that <laughs> and see how influential he is, because uh, it's 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 worth falling down the rabbit hole of him. You know, we'll get into it more in the next episode, but you you can literally spend the next five years uh, reading Lovecraft and be pretty content, pretty fucked up, but pretty content. <laughs> Yeah, it's his. If you were looking for a starting point, uh, the best place is probably Call of Cthulhu. It's one of the longer ones, but really gives you just a great sampling of his style. And it's I'm going to tell you straight up, it's not for everybody. Uh, his his writing does get a, a little little purple. He loves describing stuff and he has a very, very specific way of de- describing things like gibbous is a word that I had never heard before until i started reading lovecraft um and the the way that he presents things is very does he i don't know almost matter of fact which sounds strange because he uses such verbose language but like his presentation of like monsters is you know there was a monster and i it drove me fucking nuts the end yeah all right, so let's wrap this up because I know we're all itching to get to uh, the next episode where we talk about our favorite Lovecraft works and like how uh, basically all that took root through modern day horror. Yeah, and we'll talk about like his influence on like some of the great uh, fantasy and horror uh, auteurs of the past century. So, all right. So yeah, Nick's mic cut out is which why he hasn't said anything in like the past fifteen minutes. Oh okay. Oh, his mic is working, but it's not being recorded. So Nick Nick says bye, everybody. He also, you guys can't see it, but he's he's typing a lot of really racist, anti-Semitic things into the into the fucking yeah, Skype chat. Yeah, Jesus, I think, I think man, we, calm down. Oh man, I think this episode awoke in a sleeping giant in Nick because he is just letting loose with a string of anti-semitic and 
anti. Oh, oh, it's just terrible. Oh, oh God. Somebody, oh, somebody God, called he's Jesse. Somebody himself. called Jesse Jackson. Oh, oh he's God. doing the Nazi salute now and giving himself a little Hitler mustache with a sharpie. Oh, oh God. Nick. Oh. Nick. What happened to you?